The story is told of a pastor from a few generations ago. He was a bit of a controversial, pa controversial pastor because he had made a lot of statements about the city he was living in and oftentimes would call out different leaders for sin that was in their life and called them to repent in Jesus. And as a result, he had made a number of enemies across the city. People often were writing editorials about him in the city that he was in. It was that kind of controversy. Well, one day this pastor was walking with his 10-year-old son through a park. They were just enjoying their time and a journalist came up to him. And the journalist pulled him aside in the park and asked the, the father, asked the pastor, what he thought about one of these men who had written so many scathing remarks about the pastor in the paper. And the pastor looked to the journalist and said, I think he's a good man. The journalist kind of scratched his head and, and walked away. And then the father kept walking with the son, and the 10-year-old son looked up at the dad and said, Dad, I don't understand. Isn't that the man who said so many mean things about you in the past? How could you say he was a good man? The pastor looked down on his son and said, The journalist asked, did not ask me what that man thought of me. <laughs> he asked me what I thought of that man. You know, it's just a little story, but it makes me wonder, what do you do when someone insults you? When someone disagrees with you, when someone talks down at you, when someone takes a different position when you, is you, or if someone calls you out on something. Genuinely speaking, when you think of the inner monologue that goes inside your head, what's happening in there when someone disagrees with you or is angry towards you? If you're like me, probably one of your natural reactions is that you start defending yourself. Even if it doesn't happen visibly to anybody else, I'm guessing the first move you have is to start defending yourself and you think of all the ways that you're right and this other person has got to be wrong. What an interesting story it is to look at a man like this pastor who wasn't just using words, but he was reflecting what he actually felt. How do you respond to others who take different positions from you? Are you quick to defend yourself? Are you quick to prop yourself up? Or do you have a generous spirit? Do you have a meek spirit about you? One that isn't trying to defend yourself at all times because you know you don't need to. We're in this series on the Sermon on the Mount, and this Sermon on the Mount takes place in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. It's one of, it is the most famous sermon that's ever been given, a sermon given by Jesus. And the whole point of the entire three chapters where it's given in the Bible, is to describe the ethics of the kingdom of heaven. This is what it looks like to live underneath Jesus' authority. If you're going to put your faith in Jesus and you're going to call yourself a Christian, then you need to look to the Sermon on the Mount to begin to get the, the footing and the infrastructure for what your life ought to be lived like. And it gives complete instruction. So when you read the Sermon on the Mount, you should regularly be asking yourself, is this true of me? It's one thing to read it and to say that's nice. It's another thing to actually meditate on the words and say, is this ethic, this kingdom ethic, the way I actually think and live, is this how my heart and mind work? Am I living outwardly this way? And the Sermon on the Mount starts with these Beatitudes. That's what we're studying, the, the Beatitudes that begin the Sermon on the Mount. And there are these eight statements that begin with the words, blessed. Blessed are you if you do this. Blessed are you if you do this. And literally, the word beatitude just means blessing. And so what we're going to do today is look at the third beatitude, uh, particularly. And 
The third beatitude says, Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now let me read you all the beatitudes so we get a sense for them as we go through this today. It begins this way. The first beatitude, Jesus opens his mouth, Matthew chapter 5, verse 2, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, as I shared in the opening week when we began this series of messages in the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes have a clear and definite order to them. And we've already seen this, but let me do a bit of review for us so we make sure we get our footing right of what we're dealing with today when Jesus says, blessed are the meek. It starts with, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, you remember what that meant. To be poor in spirit did not mean to be weak per se or to hate yourself in any way, but what it meant was to adequately know, to rightly know that there exists a a definite chasm between you in your sinful state and a holy God. And that the only way to bridge that chasm is if you place your faith in Jesus Christ who died for you on the cross. To be poor in spirit is to declare before a holy God, I am in utter need of you. I cannot get to you on my own. I cannot live the life I was made for on my own. I'm too wretched. And then what comes out of that, remember these go in order, they build on each other. The second one was, once you know that you're poor in spirit, then blessed are those who mourn. That's the second beatitude. And mourning was not just any mourning, but mourning particularly was mourning over the reality of your sin and the reality of a sinful world. Those who mourn are those who are truly poor in spirit because you've looked at the reality of your sin. You've looked at the reality of your selfishness and it causes you to hate that. And it causes you to look out at a broken world and know the reason the world is as broken as it is is because there's people like us in it. There's sinners like us. It's sin that causes brokenness. It's sin that causes hatred. It's sin that causes death. And we mourn over that. And then we get to the third beatitude. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, I've got to confess to you, as I started studying for this passage, this is a beatitude that I not only have always struggled with, but I frankly was a little nervous to really dig into it. And let me give you two reasons why, two two particulars that I, I want to share with you. First, blessed are the meek. Now, at face value, I don't like that all that much. I'd much rather say, blessed are the dragon slayers. That's what I want to do. I want to go out and I want to be strong. I want to be a dragon slayer. I want to, I want to be a warrior. Blessed are the warriors. What's this meek talk? It's interesting. God did a lot of work on me this week as I really got to understand what it means to be meek. Meekness is not weakness. We'll get there in just a little bit. But I had to do, God had to personally work on my own heart and what it is inside of me that wants to be strong. But secondly, I had to wrestle with the term itself. What does meekness mean? 
It's interesting, it's not really used all that much in Scripture. It's a, it's a term that's used in the Scriptures, and it's used in, and frankly, it's uh, translated a handful of other ways throughout the Scriptures, particularly the word gentle often comes to mind, or humble comes to mind. But it's hard to pinpoint exactly what Jesus means when he says, blessed are the meek. And the third thing that was difficult for me is that after studying all this, I just had to ask the question, is it true of me? Am I this person? And if not, why not? And that's the question I want you to ask yourself today. Let's start with a definition. What is meekness? Well, one leading Bible, Bible commentary dictionary describes meekness this way, and I just love this definition. It says, meekness, meekness means to not be overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Hmm. Meekness means to not be overly impressed by a, sel- a sense of one's self-importance importance. That really is the nucleus of meekness. It has to do with something. This is where we start. It's something to do with the way we view ourselves, and then it has something to do with how the way we view ourselves interacts with how we view others. Now, this is totally countercultural to view yourself in the way the Scripture says we should view ourselves. And because of that, we as Christians would say meekness is an absolute work of God in a person's life. No person is just naturally meek the way Jesus is describing meekness. It's a supernatural work. And and look, look at how it, it follows what I've just said. It builds on the other Beatitudes. If you're poor in spirit, you know your own depravity. You know your sinfulness and you've accepted it and you receive the grace of God and then you mourn, that's the second Beatitude, over your own sin. Now, if you truly are mourning, I mean deep in your heart, over the reality of the fullness of your wretchedness before a holy God. That gives you a certain view of yourself where you lower how highly you think of yourself because you're seeing yourself rightly. You're actually understanding that you are not as important as you thought you were or how important as you would like yourself to be. But you see yourself through a humble lens and that causes you to look at others in a totally different way. It's totally countercultural. Think of how Paul describes this in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. How often have we heard that and frankly just don't apply it? Think of the words. Count others as more significant than yourself. Well, how do you do that? See, each of us usually live with ourselves at the center of our universe. When we think about the jobs we take, we think about the hobbies we pursue, how we use our time, what books we read, what movies we watch, who we invest our energy into, ultimately, to be honest, it's typically pretty self-serving. It's the things that interest us. It's the things that help us get ahead. It's the things that serve our particular needs and desires. Most of us naturally place ourselves at the center of our own universe, and most of us unintentionally, but naturally, do not genuinely see others as greater than ourselves. Yet, the Bible repeatedly calls us to that place. At the heart of meekness is this all-encompassing contentment with life. It's interesting how meekness is, is directly connected with contentment. You cannot be meek in a biblical sense, if you're not content in this life. Now, what do I mean by that? See, if you're not content in this life, 
then you are living in such a way that you will always be striving for something. A, a person who's not content, you can tell when they're not content because they're always chasing the next best thing. They're always hoping for the next best adventure, just for a little bit more money, a few more relationships, a little bit of a better seat in the community, a little bit more prestige. You, you see a person who's not content by the way they are constantly trying to fill a wound that is deep inside of them that says that they're not enough. And if you're living with a wound inside of you, however it got there, if that wound inside of you is constantly gnawing at your heart and it's saying, you're not enough, you're not enough, and here's what happens. Every time someone disagrees with you, you go on the defensive. Why? Because there's a wound festering in your heart that says that you're not enough, and they need to know that you are enough. They have to be told that you're enough. They've got to be shown that you're enough. They've got to be shown that you're stronger than they are, that you can beat them in a debate, that they're not going to take you down. They have to be proved by you that you are enough so that you can satisfy the wound that's inside of you that says that you're not enough. And this comes out all the time. How often does someone say something about you and you move to defensiveness? Why is that our first move? See, that shows a discontent in life. It shows you feel, still feel you've got to prove something to everybody else. The meek person is no longer defensive because they know they've got nothing to prove. And that's a supernatural work of the Lord. This wound is deep in the American psyche. And it's deep in the heart of most of us in this church. There's a great story in the Old Testament of Abraham. Abraham, I think, exudes meekness many times in his life, but this particular story is pretty fascinating and it's glanced over too quickly very often. Abraham was Abraham. God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans. This is way back in Genesis, right? And God calls Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, and says, I'm going to bless you and you are going to be a blessing to the nations. That's Genesis 12. And Abraham takes a few of the people from his family, particularly one young man named Lot. Lot was his nephew. And Abraham and Lot pick up their stuff with a few others from the family, and they travel to the land God said, I'm going to give to you. And there came this moment where Abraham had all his wealth and all his sheep and all his people that were underneath him. And Lot also had all his people and all his sheep and all his wealth that were underneath them. Now, in those days, wealth was primarily not in physical money, but actually in the size of your flocks, in the size of the amount of sheep that you had and the people that reported to you and were part of your care. That was what wealth was measured by. And, and God, God had incredibly, richly blessed Abraham with incredible wealth in that day. But there was too, money, too many people and too many sheep in one particular piece of land, and arguments were happening between the, the herdsmen of Abraham and the herdsmen of Lot. You know what Lot does? What Abraham does, I mean? Abraham takes Lot, his younger nephew. Keep in mind, God spoke to Abraham, not to Lot. He takes younger Lot up to the top of a hill. He says, Lot, look, we're, we can't live like this. There's too much argument happening between our people. There's, we've grown too big. Look out over all the land. You see it? You see the sea over that way, and you see all the beautiful plains over that way? Lot, you pick. Which way do you want to go? I'll take the other one. And Lot 
looks out and he sees that the plains to the east are far more beautiful land. It's far greater, just to the eyes, it looks far superior. And Lot says, I'll take that. I'll take the more beautiful land. And Abraham says, good, you go there. I'm content. I'll go over here. Isn't it interesting? You look at that story, there's something powerful about that. Abraham had every right to choose first, didn't he? He, he was the head. He was the patriarch. He was the one whom God had spoken to. Lot had stuff because he was in relationship to Abraham. And yet Abraham gave up that right. He said, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> you pick first. And then when Lot chose the better land, Abraham said, that's great. I'm glad for you. And he was content with what God had given him. That's meekness. And it's totally countercultural. Now, let me explain to you. I'm, I'm trying to paint a picture of what meekness is because it's very hard to pinpoint. Let me make sure I walk through what meekness is not. I think this is helpful to make sure we, we get what meekness is and we get what meekness is not. First of all, meekness is not poor in spirit. Those are two different beatitudes. Poor in spirit was primarily about our relationship with God. It was taking a humble posture before God and saying, we are totally wicked on our own behalf before you, God. You are right to judge us, and without grace in our life, we would be completely at loss. Meekness is a posture that is not just in relationship to God, but is in relationship to others as well. Meekness is the first place where we begin to relate to others after rightly viewing our own posture. Meekness, remember, is not being overly impressed with ourselves before God or before others. Now, I want to be clear. Being meek is not just a personality trait. I think that's one of the first confusions people have when they hear this beatitude, blessed are the meek. They tend to think of people who are genuinely, just naturally, more quiet, a little bit more behind the scenes, a little bit more preferring to serve in the role of a servant behind the scenes. And, and I mentioned this when I preached on poor in spirit. Those people will shake the kingdom of heaven. I mean, I'm telling you, those people who have a natural bent towards quietness, towards shyness, towards kind of serving behind the scenes and not necessarily being up front, God will use them to change the world. It's amazing. I love watching what God does to people with that gifting. But that is not what meekness is. Meekness is not just a natural tendency or proclivity that people have. Meekness is not that. Meekness is also not passivity. This is so important, and we're going to stay here for just a moment. Meekness is not an excuse to be passive in the face of injustice and wrong and evil and violence. Christians fight aggressively for what is right. You look at the New Testament church and you see men and women who stood up for what was right, who went out and they preached the gospel boldly and they stepped into brokenness and loved people radically. And we demand justice when there's an injustice. We have righteous indignation the way that Jesus had righteous indignation when the glory of God was, was when someone did something against the glory of God. Remember when Jesus made a cord of whips and he went into the temple where people were used using the, the temple to make money and to become rich, and he flipped the temple tables over. He says, how dare you? How dare you turn the temple of the living God into a den of thieves? 
There is a righteous indignation that Christians should have about evil in the world. And meekness is not an excuse for passivity. Hear that. Men particularly, I want you to hear this from me, because I think sometimes we use this as an excuse to step into what God has called you into. Do not think that blessed are the meek is your safety card to not be involved. It's not it. You misread the text if that's what you think. There are many things in this life that we are appropriately called to have an aggression towards. Not a physical aggression, the way the world understands aggression, but a righteous indignation funneled through the gospel that steps into brokenness with the power of the Holy Spirit at your fingertips. That's the Christian life, and it can be done in a way that is truly meek. When the name of God is tarnished, when injustice occurs around us, meekness does not mean passivity. Now, I want to pause here, and I want to reflect on this last week for just a moment. I want to reflect on the story of Ahmaud Arbery. Many of you have seen this story, and for the sake of the fact that a number of you will be watching with children, I'm not going to be going into the details of that story, only to say that this seems, with everything we have seen so far, to be once again a tremendous injustice. And this story makes me weep, as it should make every Christian weep. It's the Christian worldview that refuses to be passive in the face of wickedness like this. When injustice, systemic injustice, is so blatantly in your face, it's unchristian to be a passive bystander. Make sure you understand that. It's unchristian to be a passive bystander. Meekness is not passive. Meekness says, meekness says that this is wrong, this is evil, and this is sick and twisted, and I'm not going to just stand idly by. Why? Well, because I know that Psalm 89.14 says, righteousness and justice, justice are the foundation of God's throne. It's part of his character. And if I'm going to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ, it better be a mark of me as well. I better stand for things that cause me to say that is unjust. I better stand up against that. And so meekness is not passivity to injustice. Meekness just knows that when you start fighting that fight in the name of Jesus, the way Jesus would have you fight, when you start truly building a multi-ethnic community, a multi-ethnic church that reflects the family of God, when you start stepping into brokenness with a loud trumpet of the victory of Jesus Christ on the cross, you're going to make people upset. And meekness does not take offense at that. It doesn't personalize that. Meekness says, it's not about me. It's about the glory of God. So meekness flips the scripts and it takes the center off you where you feel like you've been offended and you look to God where you say, I don't stand for him being offended. And so when others are offended by me or when I feel like I gotta be defensive, I'm taking the path of meekness when it comes to my glory. I'm not trying to defend myself. To my white brothers and sisters, do not stay passive and quiet in the face of injustice and think you are being Christian. You must speak, you must act, and most importantly, you must be incredibly intentional to form real relationships that change your perspective. Everyone is on a journey on this, but do not sit idly by while the world burns around you. 
you need to step up and you need to speak and you need to love the way Jesus did. Meekness is not weakness. Actually, I would make the case that it takes a very powerful inner strength to be meek. Now, what do I mean by that? Listen to how A.W. Tozer says this. The meek man is not a human mouse, afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. Rather, he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion and as strong as Samson, but he has stopped being fooled about himself. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. He knows he is as weak and helpless as God has declared him to be. But paradoxically, he knows at the same time that he is in the sight of God of more importance than angels, in himself nothing, and in God everything. You see, this is meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness requires strength. Meekness requires you to not only know your own depravity, but to know who God says you are and to be so strong in your convictions of God's love poured into your life that you do not literally care anymore what anybody else says about you or the way you live your life. See, the way you stop being defensive is when you heal the wound. And the only person that can heal the wound is Jesus Christ. All that energy starts going towards the Lord. Now, make sure we understand this. Meekness is the fundamental opposite message of the world around us. It's the fundamental opposite message of the world around us. If you go into any setting, you go to the business world, you go to the world of entertainment, you go anywhere, and and you start asking, how do you get ahead in this world? How do you form a life of meaning that matters? Nobody will say, behave meekly. It's literally not in the playbook. The world does not understand this. The world does not recognize this. And if we are suckered by the world, we slowly start believing the lies the world tells us that the way you build a meaningful life, the way you actually build a life worth living is by striving. You keep going upwards. You keep going up. If it's bigger, it's better. If you influence more people, that's what matters. If you make a name for yourself, you can have a, a greater change and you can make a greater impact. And if you make a lot of money while you're doing it, great. All the more power to you. That's the message of the world. It's not the message of the gospel. The gospel flips that whole thing upside down. It's a totally upside down world. In fact, the strongest people I've ever known, the people who I respect with the most amount of force in my life are the ones who have exemplified meekness. I love how Henry Nouwen says this. He says, who will freely choose, listen to this, commenting on culture, who will freely choose a low-paying job when a high-paying job is being offered? Who will choose poverty when wealth is within reach? Who will choose the hidden place when there's a place in the limelight? Who will choose to be with one person in great need when many people could be helped during the same time? Who will choose to withdraw to a place of solitude and prayer when there are so many urgent demands from all sides? This is the way of Christ. It's fundamentally countercultural to everyone who tells you you've got to keep going up. It's not about you. And the only way to develop a truly meek posture where you're no longer defensive and trying to build your own kingdom and make everyone else think that you're someone great is to fill the wound inside of you that says that you're not enough. And if you're trying to fill it by other people's approval, you'll never fill it. It's got to be filled by God. 
God is the only one who can fill that wound inside of you. And you have to place your faith in Jesus because in Jesus Christ, you're fully known in all of your weakness. It's not, a, it's not a lie. He's not just pretending like you're not broken. He's not just pretending that you're not poor, uh, spiritually poor. He sees you as you really are. And then he sees Jesus' blood shed over your entire life if your faith is in Jesus. And when God looks down on you, rather than seeing you and your brokenness, he sees Jesus and his righteousness covering you like a blanket. And he looks down on you and he says, I approve. You're fully known in all your sin and fully loved. I couldn't push any more love into your body if I possibly tried. God looks on you and he doesn't see you in your sin, doesn't see you in your weakness, doesn't see you in all your mistakes, but he looks down and sees Jesus Christ's blood covering you and says, you are fully known. You're fully loved. There's nothing lacking in my love of you. And if you know that, the wound gets healed. You stop striving when you know that. There's, there's this powerful contentment that comes over your life. It's all-consuming, and people take notice. Something changes about you. That's the mark of the Christian. You're different. You, 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 you're, you're, you're drumming to a different beat. You're walking a whole different path, and it's the path of meekness because your wound has been filled. Many of us still have that wound to be filled, church. And you haven't fully known the gospel if you've still got that wound. If you're still worried about what other people think about you, you've got to look to the love of Jesus who says you're known perfectly by a God who knows everything about you and has secured you. And look what it says. You're, you will inherit the earth. This is incredible. See, it, that statement, you're blessed because you're going to inherit the earth, has a present and a future reality to it. Presently, what does it mean? If your faith is in Jesus, you already have an inheritance. It's not, I will inherit one day. It's you are inheriting it right now. You are part of the inheritance. All the power of God's kingdom is being in full force in your life. You're his ambassador. Do you know that? The full love of Jesus Christ working through your life, pouring all of his promises into you is true of you now. That's why Romans 8, 28, that powerful verse, is so powerful to repeat over and over again in your life as a Christian. What does it say? All things work together for good for those who are called according to his promise. See, that's not just, you know, happy-go-lucky statements. No, yours is the kingdom of this earth. God's establishing his kingdom through you, and all of his promises are true. You have nothing to lose. You're on the winning side of history. You may have bad days, and there might be seasons where it looks like the church is up against the wall, but Jesus wins. And if you're on, your, on his team, that's good news because you're in the process of winning no matter what it looks like today. What do you have to lose? Someone might be angry with you. So what? You're a Christian. <laughs> you got the kingdom of heaven. You will inherit the earth, and it's a present reality today, but there's also a future reality to it. Did you know, you know, I mentioned this almost in passing earlier in the, in the message. Did you know the scriptures tell you that you will judge the angels? You ever thought about that? Literally. The scriptures tell us in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, you will judge the angels. Think about that. Do you know the place you have in the unfolding of God's plan for his universe? If you're a Christian, your future is not only secure, you live in light of the reality that one day this entire earth 
will be renewed in such a way that Jesus takes up his physical kingship. Keep in mind, he is, he is king right now. And his kingdom is expanding right now on this earth. And one day it will be complete. And this earth will be renewed. Heaven is here, just so you know that. Not here presently fully right now. Heaven will be this earth that we're living on, this space where I'm in right now. This is where it's going to be one day. And you will judge the angels here. You will have a future where this earth is renewed and your inheritance will be in full and it's been promised to you. When you know the present and the future reality of your inheritance, it fills the wound. It changes your perspective and it causes contentedness and it causes meekness in your life towards others. I want to close with a quick story. Uh, thinking of Mother's Day. I oftentimes will talk about my own mother in, in sermons, but today I want to actually celebrate something my mother-in-law said recently. Uh, I was in Indiana back at my, my wife's parents' place a while ago and we were sitting around in the backyard just having fun conversation and somehow we got on the topic of uh, what your bucket list was. And, and you know, we t- I don't know if you've ever had that conversation, but a bucket list is all the stuff you want to make sure you do before you die. And, you know, I'm thinking through all my bucket lists. Man, I want to see the pyramids, right? I want to uh, write books. I, I want to, I, you know, there's all these things I want to do in my life. And I was going around, what's on your bucket list? And, and Sarah's mom, she wasn't part of the conversation, but she came up halfway through and I turned to her. I said, Gretchen, what's What's on your bucket list? And almost before I could get the question out, you know what she said? She said, I don't need anything else. Look at all that God's blessed me with. I'm content just the way it is right now. And that little sentence left an impression on me that kind of hasn't gone away. I think she understood what it means to be content in the blessings of God in your life. See, when that wound of you, that wound inside of you that feels like you've got to prove something to every other person around you, when that wound truly gets healed by the only one who can fully heal it, by trusting in Jesus Christ, when that actual transaction and that work takes place in your heart, something about you changes. And you don't need to strive anymore. You don't need to defend yourself anymore. You're not constantly trying to get ahead for yourself just one more little bit. You don't need to search for the next best thing anymore. You don't need a bucket list anymore. You take on a posture of meekness. This is, I know who I am. I know God's love in my life. And I'm most concerned about the glory of God. That's where my energy is going to go. And Jesus says, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your word. God, we recognize that we have so far to go in this. God, we recognize that we are all works in progress. None of us have made it yet, but you are in the work of healing us, of filling those wounds. And so Jesus, I pray today for a powerful work of your spirit in the people of our church and whoever else might be listening to this video today. I pray, Jesus, that you would get a hold of our life and and make us realize the work of your gospel in our life. Make us realize that it's not just that our sins have been forgiven, but that you've healed us. You've healed the wounds that make us look like the world and you've set us on a new path. Jesus, would you do that work? We want to see Jesus glorified. We want to see your name go forward. We want to live as your ambassadors with a boldness and a courage, but it can't happen until we're healed, until our wounds are healed. We need you to fix us.
And so, God, would you encourage us? Would you embolden us? You teach us how to be truly meek. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.